the Gospel according to John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, um, we just said we, uh, we believe in you. Um, some of us uh, are able to say that and it, and it provokes joy. Yes, we believe in you. Some of us say, oh, I want to believe in you. Do I? Do I believe in you? I wish I did. Some of us say, man, I'm not even sure that's a good idea. But wherever we're at, Will you make yourself plain? You're a good communicator. You invented the whole idea. Will you communicate yourself to us? Will you, uh, by your spirit, grant us to see Jesus and really listen to Jesus? And, and, and will you grant it uh, that, that ultimately we find Jesus speaking to us? Um, Father, that's a miracle. And to some of us, it sounds audacious. That's okay. Would you please do it anyway? In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Uh, and uh, if you would turn back to uh, page 11, this reading from the Gospel of John. Um, we've, this is kind of our second crack at this reading. Uh, we're going to be spending most of the time on the second half of it. But it, it strikes me, the more I spend time with this reading, that it, it's very, very strange um, for a bunch of reasons. Here's, here's one. Just set the scene for a second. Um, we're parachuting in. Uh, we pick up the story of Jesus. These are all, this is just a kind of a, a speech of Jesus. This is a quote, an excerpt of Jesus speaking to his disciples. It's about two hours-ish, we don't know, about two hours before Jesus gets uh, arrested, condemned, uh, uh, put to death. And he knows 
uh, he, Jesus knows about the plot. He knows it's happening in the background. And um, just a little bit before this excerpt, um, Jesus talks about how he is experiencing in this moment, as he talks to his disciples, just excruciating emotional turmoil. He says, my soul is troubled, which sounds a little, but it was big. And this is the last significant conversation he's going to have with the disciples before it all happens. And they're not ready for it. And do you know what Jesus is talking about? Horticulture. Horticulture. You know what horticulture is? I had to look it up. It is the art or the practice of garden cultivation and management. It's a big word for me. It's something I've never really experienced. Um, I've killed things, but I've never actually cultivated anything. But anyways, Jesus is talking about horticulture. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Of all the things, does that strike you as odd? Of all the things that Jesus could be talking about right before he gets killed. Why is he talking about horticulture? And it ends up, maybe it's just me that thinks that's odd, that's fine, but it ends, it ends up, apparently there's a good reason for it. What he's doing in this moment with the disciples is he's, he's referencing the Old Testament. Did you pick that up in the first reading? He's referencing the Old Testament, something very, very important. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus uh, sits down with his disciples, all through the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, are described as a vineyard. Not a vine, but a vineyard. But here's the thing. Israel in the Old Testament is described as a vineyard, but usually when it's described as a vineyard, the point of, of describing it is, as a vineyard is to say that it is a vineyard who produces bad fruit, bad grapes, wild grapes. They're yucky. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, uh, we can't go into it in great detail, but in the first reading, what we find out is that here's the prophet Isaiah looking at the nation of Israel, and what he's saying is that despite all of Israel's religion, which was, you know, really good, despite Israel's remarkable history, re re despite their great heritage, nevertheless, Israel's religion had ended up being regularly, not always, but regularly dead. Israel's religion had ended up being regularly toxic in such a way that God goes to Israel in Isaiah and looks, investigates his vineyard. He goes, man, I've been cultivating this vineyard. How's it going? He looks at the grapes, and they're wild grapes. They're, they're off. They're, they're not good fruit. In particular, God looks at them and says, how's your justice? How's your righteousness? And in verse 7, he says, all I get is bloodshed and outcry. Now, two hours before Jesus dies, or gets arrested, he knows, Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he knows, this is in his mind, he knows that he's about ready to be killed by an example of this toxic religion. And therefore, he looks at his disciples in this reading, and he says in so many words, he says, listen, I'm about ready to die, and that's going to look like an utter disaster, but nevertheless, my death is not going to be in vain. He says, my death... I'm going to be killed by fruitless, toxic religion. But nevertheless, my death is going to open up a door for a new kind of fruitfulness. Um, I, I'm the new vine, a better vine, 
You're the branches, disciples. I want you to go out and I want you to bear good fruit. Now, here's the question we need to ask today. What does it mean to bear good fruit for Jesus? We don't want to be like toxic Israel in the Old Testament. We want to bear good fruit. What does that look like? And here's what I want to show you. Fruitfulness happens when we become friends of Jesus. We'll talk about what that means. Friends of Jesus who love like Jesus loves. Let's get into it. Um, we're going to point out two things. One, there's a call to love like Jesus loves. That's the first thing we're going to see. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is that grows, that ability to love as Jesus loves, grows out of a privileged friendship with Christ. First of all, the call to love like Jesus. Take a look at verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, looking at his disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what it is that I command you. All right. Now, if you were here with us last week, we talked about, we started talking about fruitfulness. And what we said is that fruitfulness as a Christian starts when you receive spiritual life from Jesus. What does that mean? What is spiritual life from Jesus? Well, last week we said, do you remember? We said, spiritual life from Jesus is love, experienced as joy, the joy of being loved to the deepest part of who we are, but then exhibited in obedience. And we talked about how we have to receive that spiritual life, but then Jesus wants us to share that spiritual life. And it ends up this week that that Sharing of the spiritual life happens as we become, in Jesus' words, his friends. But the problem is, here's, here's the challenge, the problem is that Jesus has just a shockingly big view of friendship. Did you catch that? If you want to be, the verses we just said, if you want to be a fruitful Christian, if you want to be a, 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 a true friend of Jesus Christ, what it means is that it involves proactively setting aside my self-interest so that you can focus in on somebody else's good. It means we have to learn how to love well beyond a pain line. Now, let's play with this idea just a little bit. Because one of the things that makes this, uh, the, these verses difficult to hear is that everybody agrees that we should love each other, right? Like, raise your hand if you think love's a bad idea. Don't. But nobody does, right? Um, everybody thinks love's a good idea. Um, we should probably all be on the love team, right? And in fact, this is one of the reasons why uh, people say all religions say the same thing, because in in the, you know, to this extent, that's generally true. Every, most religions I'm aware of thinks love, all things being equal, is what you should do. Here's the problem. We use the word love, but what we mean by it can, can be radically different from what Jesus means by it. So, for instance, um, very often when we talk about the idea of love popularly, and especially when we're talking about love in the context of religion or in the context of ethics, very often we mean something that is general, 
passive and self-satisfied. Here's what I mean. Um, everybody agrees that we should love each other, but oftentimes what we mean by love is we mean a generalized feeling of benevolence towards other people in general, right? And, and, and what we say is we should love folks, and, and we usually just cast that net in a very general sort of way. We should love, for instance, the poor in general, right? We should love, uh, we, should, we should seek world peace. We should love people all over the world in general. Um, we should uh, feel empathy for a category maybe like refugees or something like that. And, and we talk about it typically in very general terms. Now, is that a problem? No. The sentiment's great, right? There's nothing wrong with it. There's everything right with it. But here's where it starts to become a problem. When we think of love in a very general sort of way, toward a general group of people, it, very often it, it allows us to remain very passive. What I mean is that it rarely moves us to specific action. It doesn't demand that much of us. It's general, and very often it's passive. We get to just kind of sit back and say, yes, I'm on the I agree with the team that loves people in general. But then, thirdly, and this is where the real sting comes, it also very often leaves us self-satisfied because here's how, here's how our brain works. See if you're like this. Um, we feel love, a kind of generalized benevolence towards people, um, and we're very glad that we're the kind of people who feels a generalized benevolence towards people. And we, that reassures us that we're the right kind of people who feel the right sorts of things, who care about the right kind of issues. And we reassure ourselves, we give ourselves a sense of satisfaction that we're on the good team, the team that loves people. Now, this is one of the things that happened to ancient Israel. Um, you go back to ancient Israel, did ancient Israel believe in love? Of course they believed in love, right? If you read the Old Testament law, it is all founded upon love. But the, the problem very often is what they could do is sort of take love, make it sort of general, and they, that allowed them to be pretty passive so they didn't have to actually engage with, uh, with people who are difficult to love in particular. But the whole time they had this robust method of telling themselves that they were okay in their kind of present, very slow level of loving other people. But what happened is when God comes in and he investigates their fruit, what he finds is that what they call fruit is not fruit at all. It's wild grapes. He says, I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for righteousness. But all I'm finding is bloodshed and outcry. And the whole time, Israel, you think you're loving. This is the problem. What we call love is often general, passive, and self-satisfied. And it becomes a cover-up for actually never really having to engage in a costly manner. Okay, why am I saying all this? To contrast what Jesus means by love. Go back to verse 12. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love each other. Now, if I put the full stop, if I put the period right there, whew, I'm fine, right? Are you? But keep on reading. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's where it gets troublesome. And then it gets worse. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if, I very much prefer the if wasn't there, if you do what I command you, namely give up your life for the sake of others. Does that create a problem for you? Oh, this feels very lonely. Um, doesn't it? Jesus' model is that we are to love in the way that he loves us. And the problem with his love, I mean, it's great, but the problem with his love is that it's not general, it's specific, it's not passive, it's proactive, and it's not self-satisfied, it's self-sacrificial. So his love is not general, it's very specific. He says, you have not chosen me, I've chosen you, and I've chosen every one of you, so that if you're a Christian, you are a particular, specific beneficiary of Jesus' love. And his death upon the cross for you. Jesus' love isn't just general. It's specific. He calls each of us by name. Jesus' love is not general. It's specific. But it's also not passive. It's very proactive. I mean, this whole, the, all the story of the Gospels, read all four of them, Jesus' entire life is a proactive march towards his own death and resurrection. It's profoundly proactive. His love is specific. His love is proactive. But also, his love is the opposite of self-satisfied. His love is defined by self-sacrifice. He gives his life for his disciples, all of whom abandon him, and he gives his life for his enemies. Now, can you feel that that's a little bit more demanding than what it is we often mean when we say the word love? And Emmanuel, what this means for us is that the only way we can be a fruitful church, the only way that we can be robustly friends of Jesus according to his definition is if we learn to love one another and the world in a way that's specific, proactive, and sacrificial. Now, how do we learn how to do that? Great question. That's the next thing. There's a call, first of all, to love like Jesus loves. But then, the way we love, the way we learn to love as Jesus loves is through this privileged relationship of friendship with Christ. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For what I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, look at those verses that verse 15, do you see the privilege of friendship in those verses? It's remarkable that Jesus says this. He goes, I used to call you servants. All through the Old Testament, um, the idea of being a servant of God was a, was, a, was a privileged status. But nevertheless, Jesus says, now we're going to use a different word. We're going to use the word friends. Now, a servant uh, obeys his or her master, right? However, there's a bit of a coolness in that relationship. Like, even in, even in the best kind of situation, a servant serves his or her master usually because of some sort of economic situation, economic gain, whatever it is, if it's, if it's not exploitative. In any event, there's a degree of, of coolness in the relationship, distance. However, friendship is different. 
If you are a friend of Jesus Christ, it means that you are bonded to Christ in mutual love. It means that in some way you have a sense of his particular specific love for you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, Jesus said. But it also means that there's a a return of love to Jesus Christ so that you're bound together with him. Now, if you're a Christian, this is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants you to grow in all the time. And if you're not sure that you believe any of this, the audacious invitation of Jesus today is that he wants to invite you into this kind of very, very living, intense relationship of friendship. But now, look at the verse. Because this privileged relationship with Jesus begins to give us new resources for how we can learn to love. Look, look, look at the verse again, verse 15. Do you see that friendship with Jesus means that Jesus confides in us? Do you see that there? He confides in us. He says, the Father's told me all kinds of things, and I'm telling you everything I've heard from the Father. Uh, last week, we talked about how Jesus uh, receives love from the Father, and then Jesus shares that love of the Father with us. That's part of the relationship of friendship, but verse 15 says that there's another aspect of it. Jesus also shares the wisdom that he receives from the Father. He shares that with us. He just opens up the floodgates. He says, I've got, I'm telling you everything you need to know. Now, this is key for us if we're going to learn how to love each other specifically and proactively and sacrificially. Why? Because it's as if Jesus says this. He looks at the disciples, he looks at you and me, and he says, I I have called you to love like I love you. And I know it's difficult, and I know it's frightening and daunting, but Jesus says, it's as if he says, but you have my teaching. I give you my teaching. Everything I said and everything I have done, look at everything I've done, listen to everything I've said, and you will learn to love wisely. Um, Here's the point. The only way we're going to learn how to love in this uh, counterintuitive way of specifically, proactively, sacrificially, is if we immerse ourselves in Jesus' teaching, and if we immerse ourselves in Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching points us to the rest of the Bible, and so when we read the scriptures and when we uh, treasure the scriptures, what we're doing is we're immersing ourselves in Jesus' teaching, and his teaching is always training us, just like Josh was saying about the liturgy at the beginning. Jesus is training us in how to love like he loves. Uh, this week I uh, started reading a book. I uh, haven't finished it yet, so I'm not ready to uh, recommend it, but I think I will. I love it so far. Um, it's, it's a book uh, by a, a guy called um, Dr. Eric Mason. Uh, Eric Mason is a, a church planter and pastor down in Philadelphia. And, uh, and what he does in this book is um, he, he, he's addressing... Uh, I feel like he's addressing me, kind of uh, uh, white pastors that kind of uh, risk not having a clue when it comes to issues of racism and injustice and so forth. He's African-American, and he's an extraordinarily skillful preacher and theologian. And what he does is he takes just the, the, the logic of the gospel and the teaching of scripture, 
and he articulates it very, very clearly. And then he takes this whole weight of wisdom and just lets it lean on the problem of, of injustice and racism in our nation and in particularly in the church. And as I listen to him, uh, teach me, point me to Jesus' teaching, um, help me listen to how Jesus has confided in us all the wisdom of his father, what happens is all of a sudden these issues start to become clear. And all of a sudden it becomes more and more clear how we can love specifically, proactively, and sacrificially into the issues that, that trouble us so deeply, injustice, racism, and others. And here's how it works. As that happens, as you listen to Jesus' teaching, what will very often happen is the first thing that will happen as Jesus trains you to love is that your heart will be broken. Your heart will be broken. If you think that love always feels good, you haven't loved yet. Oftentimes, the first feeling, the first experience of love when Jesus is really working in your life is you become broken. You will become broken with the world and it's and it's. It's brokenness and it's evil and you see it. You see it more clearly because Jesus' love never tolerates evil, never turns a blind eye to it, never says, well, that's the way the world works, never. Jesus' love creates this contrast where all of a sudden the brokenness that you see in the world around you becomes heavier and weightier and more grievous. It's one of the reasons why we have to pray psalms like we did. How long, O Lord? But then it doesn't stop. As Jesus is training us to love and we see the brokenness around us, we don't just see the brokenness that's out there. That's too easy. If you can only see brokenness that's out there in the world, your, your love is going to stay general and passive and self-satisfied because you'll always be able to point to somebody else and say, at least I'm not like them. No. When Jesus is working on your heart... Um, the brokenness that's out there, all of a sudden you see it in here. And that's when your heart is truly broken. And it happened this week as I was reading this book. I found Jesus, so to speak, coming to me and saying, Jim, do you love people? And of course, I'm, a, I'm like a, I like to be a good boy, right? I, I kind of say, yeah, of course, Jesus, I love everybody, you know. Um, and he says, do you? Do you love them specifically? Do you love them proactively? Do you love them sacrificially? And then I realized that actually most of the time I love people right up until the point that it cost me something. I'm real good until that moment. And then my heart starts to break because then Jesus shows me, actually, I'm not that dissimilar to Israel. I'm a vineyard and I've got some fruit and I think it's quite good. It's a big crop, roddy, roddy, rah. But Jesus looks at this and says, actually, it's wild grapes. It's wild grapes. The fruit I've got is bad fruit. I'm just like Israel. I'm a hypocrite most of the time, much of the time. Now, what then? What then? What then? What happens when Jesus' teaching moves you to the place where you realize that your best efforts have oftentimes been hypocritical? What then? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about it, let me encourage you to evaluate Jesus by how he treats us, not when we're doing well, but when we fail. That's the critical moment. 
Because when Jesus shows me my own failure to love well, I find that Jesus is always drawing me back to the cross. What I mean is Jesus is always drawing me back to his death and Jesus is always making me a specific, not general, specific beneficiary of his cross-shaped love. Because on the cross, on the cross, Jesus took all my bad fruit, all of Israel's bad fruit, all Jim's bad fruit. And he took that bad fruit with him on the cross and he allowed himself to be considered guilty for my bad fruit. You know, Jesus didn't just die from my obviously naughty behavior. Thankfully, Jesus also died from my best attempts to cover up my bad fruit. My love that's merely general, merely passive, merely self-satisfied. So the teachings of Jesus let us see the brokenness in the world, but then the brokenness in our own heart, and then there, seeing Jesus Christ love us into our brokenness, that's when you see exactly and taste and experience, and you become immersed in a love that is truly specific for you, truly proactive for you and your particular sin, truly sacrificial on your behalf and for your benefit. And that's the moment, friends, Emmanuel, it's, that's the moment when you begin to learn to love like Jesus. You, the only way to learn to love like Jesus is to become a specific beneficiary of his love displayed and purchased on the cross of Christ. That's why the ethics of Christianity really make no sense until you're actually a Christian. And you really can't share his love with others until his love for you becomes sweet upon your tongue. But there's more. Because when Jesus' love takes hold and you find yourself a friend of Christ, loved by him specifically and proactively and sacrificially, naturally, except it's supernatural, but naturally, you find yourselves wanting to love others. You know what the first way you'll do it? First way you'll do it, you'll pray. It starts in prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's what we've just been talking about, then ask whatever you, it is that you wish and it will be done for you. Now, Jesus is talking about prayer there. And the idea is that as Jesus' words and his gospel and his love for you specifically, um, as it goes deeper within you, it changes what it is that you desire and it reshapes what it is that we wish for. And more specifically, as Jesus' words reshape uh, our hearts, inevitably we end up praying out those desires. Praying out in response to Jesus' love. And it just comes out, we'll want to pray for people we really like and for people whom we have good reason to hate. Why? Well, because Jesus prayed for us when he was dying on the cross for us. If that gets in you, then you'll want to pray for others, particularly your cultural opponents. 
We'll pray that Jesus will change people through his cross. You'll pray for evangelism. You'll pray for more fruit in your own life because you'll kind of be greedy. Lord Jesus, I want more of that good fruit. It's a pleasure to bear that good fruit. I want more of it in my life. You'll pray for your church. You'll pray for other people around you for greater fruit in their lives. And you will increasingly pray specifically, proactively, and sacrificially. How's your prayer life, Emmanuel? But there's more. As we immerse ourselves in Jesus' word and his love becomes a living reality, as we devote ourselves to prayer, the first breathing out of real fruitful love, then, inevitably, you'll find yourself desiring to take action. You'll desire to uh, creatively, courageously, sacrificially, and wisely uh, represent Jesus as well as you can in every area of your life. And it'll start with your closest relationships. How can I love my closest relationships, my family, my workplace, my church, my community, my neighborhood, my city? And then it gets bigger from there. How can I love them in ways that are specific and proactive and sacrificial? Because Jesus has loved you that way. And it'll be different for every one of us. And it's only a close friendship with Jesus that'll make it specific and clear for you. But Emmanuel, that's where Jesus wants to take us. It's a good place. He loves us very much. And living his life of love towards others is very good. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.